back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart of the centre of enterprise IT. Uh, this week, it's me, Lilac, and Zach. Mike sends his apologies from a theme park in a swamp somewhere, which <laughs> apparently has the legal rights to install a nuclear reactor if it ever wants to, as grandfathered in. Fun facts for you today. <laughs> but um, speaking of uh, holdovers from last century... Uh, Citrix was in the news. <laughs> <laughs> I had a better segue, Dominic. I feel like I should jump in with this, but uh, go oh, go for it, go for it. Well, it's a fun fact about Citrix being in the news. Citrix once uh, the legend says legend, so it cannot necessarily be corroborated that Citrix made poor use of a um, theme park's characters in some of their marketing materials at some point, and the settlement involved them doing like a decade of events at the Dolphin Swan Complex in Orlando, for which we were all extremely unhappy. Because then it gave people the idea that the Swan and Dolphin was a place that you should do events, and we've all spent far too many days there. Far too many. Right, right, right. So anyway, Citrix was indeed in the news, not for abusing any humorous cartoon characters, but because they're being taken private and merged with Tipco, in a deal that, to our bemusement, is somehow worth $16.5 billion, with a B, dollars. So, Lilac, you had thoughts. I, I'm, I'm just goggling at this. You know, this has been two weeks now, old news, right? So since we skipped a news segment, and two weeks old news, and looking at that number, I just... I, I, I'm just, I'm agog. Like, honestly, I think I would be just as shocked if the number was 10 billion, which tells me I have no idea like where any of these numbers are coming from at all. Um, and and the thing that's sort of str- str- I'm struggling with here on the back end of that is that having been um, part of the Elliott experience multiple times, so this is an Elliott management experience, I will tell you that they have historically proven themselves to be, in my opinion... Uh, irritatingly accurate in their assessment of organizations, right? In that way that makes you want to tell them to just maybe shut up and fuck off because maybe they're a little bit too right. And and so th- that with that historical background um, and what I've seen of their analysis before, it is all the more shocking to see a 16 B billion dollar number associated with this transaction. I don't know where it's coming from. Isn't, isn't Tipco, looks like their uh, parent company is Vista um, Equity. So is that... Yeah, and so it's Elliot a Vista and Elliot. Yeah, it's okay. both. Yeah. It's a joint production. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. So Tipico makes a little bit more sense to me. And maybe this is just snobbery because their back-end big data pipeline messing around seems more valuable than remote desktops, which is the only thing I really associate Citrix with. And the last time I did remote desktops using Citrix, as it happens, is literally two decades ago. Uh, so, hmm, hmm. <laughs> right. That, that's right. So Tipco, you get this feeling that they potentially are like the silent piece underneath so much of enterprise IT that that maybe we just don't have a sense for the scale of the swamp that they manage inside our Fortune 500s. I'm willing to I'm willing to give them that. But but the Citrix component, where you're thinking, well. I'm sure it got buffeted by the by the pandemic, by this notion that everybody all of a sudden needs remote desktops and remote access to applications that were otherwise locked inside uh, an IT environment. But I, I don't know. It's still, it just doesn't hold water to me. I know they have hundreds of millions of users, but where is the 
where is the growth case or where is the cost optimization case that gets to there? Because those users are, are it's like having hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people using a browser. You're not going to, nobody is successfully upsold into the browsing using population just by virtue of the browser that they've chosen. Right. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it says here 400,000 customers, 98% of the Fortune 500, 100 million users in 100 countries. So I do wonder whether this is, as you say, a patented Elliott move. They've identified a market that largely by its own choice is captive. And they're just going to continue to serve that market as long as it exists. And they've evaluated that there is $16 billion, at least $16 billion worth of runway still to to be exhausted uh, in that market. I, I, I don't know. I, I want to feel that I'm missing something. But like I say, the, the Elliot experience that's, uh, that I've had has been that... Um, that was very much their their play. They they identified a productive part of of a business and they doubled down on that. And anything that was growth, that was new markets, that was outside that core revenue generating, reliably revenue generating core, was not interesting and was basically ignored and left to to die on the vine. And, but that's the sort of open text play, right? I can say that yeah. right, like that idea of 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 buying a bunch of sort of long in the tooth cattle. I don't know if cattle get long in the tooth. Um, and then, and then sort of putting them out to pasture long and, in the horn. and long in the, exactly. And then milking them until they die. Um, it's, it's an interesting strategy. It doesn't feel particularly good, but I don't know. A lot of the Elliott thesis is, has always seemed to hinge on the notion that the leadership or the management, and in Citrix case, I think there's a lot of interim management, but like the leadership and the management are somehow jacking it up. Um, and that, that if only they had their operators in place or different operators in place, they could do better. And I'm, I'm thinking of like the transition with BMC, which sort of went back and forth a couple times, right? We ended up seeing the mm. same characters returning from the dead. And, it's a revolving um, door. It really is. It turns out only so many people really want to be in that business. But, but it's just a very, to me, I'm wondering where the thesis is that you could be doing better with the Citrix install base or with the Citrix go to mark is it a growth thing are we not raising prices enough like where is the growth that justifies those number of zeros well i think the that's it it's a rationalization play that citrix and tipco at this point cater to the same type of company tipco i've never dealt with its tech directly so take this with any amount of salt uh but it's this reputation is not that it's at the cutting edge of data management. There are other newer, cooler uh, technologies uh, that that are used to do that same sort of thing if you're at a company that's had its inception this century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're at an old established company with a bunch of legacy tech, Tibco is how you wire different bits of legacy tech together. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, that same type of company is using Citrix for its for access to its applications right. and centralized management of that. So you could see it as simply, you know, taking uh, cost out of the system in the same buy. You, but it's still, again, like, so I guess if this was, tra- if this was a transaction with one fewer zeros in it, right. Or, or some like far lower number, I think I would, I would be, I could sort of get my head around that business case. Right. It's not hard. I mean, it's four to five times earnings. So it's not like it's, you know, they were taking yeah. to the cleaners. It's just why are they 
why do they want that business, right? Um, you know, and who knows? I mean, they're obviously trying to do something in their portfolio. I mean, Citrix does have their their cloud offering, which I'm not, you know, overly familiar with, but there's there's something there they want. There's some sort of data they want. And everyone else is, you know, they mer- they're merging them with Tipco, right? So there's something they want to leverage, you know, with that data for. So I, I don't know. It, it is a lot of money, but in this market, everything's, everything's floating right now. Everything's high, right? Yeah. It's basically... Uh... A gamble on data gravity, right? And this is, uh, I was talking to some analysts the other day and they reiterated, and this has been the number for a long time, for many years, that the the cloud proportion of the enterprise market is still single digit percentages. And depending on who you ask, they'll give you a different number, but it's always a single digit number. And the reason is just the inertia of past investment in these applications and often packaged applications. So if it's an in-house developed application, eventually somebody gets a B in their bonnet and says, right, we're going to go and refactor this. Right. If it's an application you procure from outside, that's maybe some sort of specialist thing for your segment that only has you know, a few dozen customers worldwide and they're all in the $100 million range, then maybe that doesn't get refactored until some you know, asteroid level event right. occurs. And that's the type of markets that uh, will stick that they with. Play in. Mm. I, I don't know. So I think I actually really like Zach's theory. Zach, I think you're right. Um, I'm going to double down on that. The idea that there is some synergy, and I mean that word not in terms of cutting all the HR team. There is some synergy in the data or information that is gathered by the Citrix platform and the back end of what Tibco manages from which there could be some greater revenue stream or growth opportunity on these assets together. I think that I, I don't see it because I don't actually have enough familiarity with both sides of, of the mm. portfolios and I I'm struggling to fathom what it is, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was a thesis around this. There's certainly an opportunity for an enterprising graphics and design team. And that, that was one of the most exciting things of BMC and uh, Elliot was the, <laughs> the redesign that they went through. And, and it was masterful and it was well-funded and it was well-executed. So if uh, you're in that field, polish up your CV, send it over to Citrix slash Tipco. Uh, they're <laughs> probably going to do something in that vein soon. Amazing. Well, I suppose this is all the speculation about random large numbers that we could manage on this show. Well, no, no, no. There's a whole lot more. Uh, nice transition that you set me up for there. No problem. So one of the big metrics in uh, the world of SaaS software is ACV, uh, so average contract value. And there's been some murmurings for a while now that it's not as useful as people think it is because it's easy to dope with uh, a small number of whales of very large customers and they will skew your average upwards, making your numbers look better. There's been an article by a VC, a partner at Lightspeed, called, and I apologize in advance for mispronouncing this, Namdi Iregbulem. And he is talking about uh, exactly that, that ACV is too easy to skew, it's too easy to mess things up, which obviously, as a venture capitalist, he cares about deeply. And he suggests that a better idea is weighted uh, ACV, where you... Uh, basically try to get a better picture of what uh, a typical contract looks like without the skewing effect uh, of those very large contracts at uh, one end of the scale. Um, Having worked in, and still working in fact, in companies that are sassy and uh, use ACV as a big part of the metric, 
this is actually something that uh that we care about very deeply that we track acv arr uh the these related not quite identical subjects are very closely watched numbers and we also look at what skews them so it does make sense to me i just wonder whether this will actually take off but lilac especially you've been looking at company valuations very closely lately <laughs> how's that always. Been for you always it's it's fresh in your drink <laughs> it's it's actually it's interesting because i think that the question of who is telling what story and to what end is absolutely critical here right so if as an operator of a of a business that is interested in ARR and that is valued on ARR, which is largely any software business, right? That we're, that we're looking at right now. Um, you actually really want truth. You don't want the whales to skew your numbers significantly as somebody who might be um, shopping a business like that around, for example, or if somebody is looking to um, get in a new round of funding or whatever, this is absolutely the kind of skew that you're interested in, right? And so when you say, tell me about a typical customer, somebody will almost always pull out like Citigroup or JP Morgan and explain yeah. that they're, you know, a six or seven figure deal, right? Well, and, and there you put your finger on it because that's exactly the thing. This, the ACV is perfectly fine as a metric where everything is a sales force mediated. So you have a salesperson on the phone or in person or whatever it is these days that's managing that process because that puts a flaw on the contract value. There's a certain contract value below which it doesn't make sense to engage. Yep. Once you get into self-service, all bets are off. And then a single JP Morgan will outweigh hundreds, thousands potentially of self-service credit card accounts. And it's a very well-run company uh, with a strong operations ethic that is able to serve both equally well. But a lot of them will tell the story that they can, especially to VCs, uh, in order to to get their, their, their investment. And the analysis is actually like, it's a little bit nuanced, right? Like, is the, are, what is, is the credit card swipe from Citigroup, right? There is a, there's usually, as we know from the shadow IT adoption behaviors, there's usually a credit card swipe from Citigroup before there's an ELA from Citigroup, right? And those are five years apart in the timeline of a company. But some credit card swipes are actually from Bob's Steak Shack, and they're never going to get any bigger, right? And then some are from Citigroup, and they're going to become enormous. And being able to do this analysis in a way that is consistent and fruitful and drives operational behaviors, honestly, is a real high bar. I, part of me actually wonders whether there's a business in that alone. It wouldn't surprise me, especially once again, as in pretty much everything, once you start looking at it, there's a Pareto distribution at play. And in, in many cases, it's even worse than Pareto. It's more than 80% in the bottom part of the pyramid and much fewer than 20% sitting in that top pointy bit of the pyramid that generates a ton of cash. And it, like I say, it, it's very easy to get distracted to go chasing the monster deals and forget about the day-to-day the -day constant drip. You can be, let's turn the whale metaphor around, you can be a whale and just open wide and swallow a whole lot of krill and that'll fuel a hundred ton whale just as well as if you're a shark and chasing tuna that's almost as big as you are. But hold on, you're, what are you, you're talking about in sales in general, just, you know, don't hunt the big ones. And what, what do you, what do you mean by that? No, I'm saying that 
both are perfectly valid tactics, uh, but there has been a history in this market of people only doing one, but saying that they're doing both. And this is a classic uh, enterprise sales play for startups that they start by going after the top end of the market because when you're small, you can only handle maybe as few as three, four sales processes in parallel because the founders have to be hands-on with each single one. And often you're also starting, especially in the enterprise world, once again, from a place where the founders have personal relationships that they're calling on. So they're calling, you know, their friend Alice or their friend Bob, who they sold to in a past life and saying, hey, I have a new thing. And Alice or Bob, who's dealt with them well in the past, are happy to give them the time of day. But then there's a transition point where you have to scale. And that's one of the many, many hurdles at which startups fail, uh, is that they fail to scale. And if you don't scale in the enterprise world, if you're lucky, you get bought up for parts. And if you're unlucky, you stumble along for a little bit and then disappear under the waters and are never seen again. People will try to eke out that process by saying, oh, yeah, of course, we have a self-service strategy. We have this, we have that. Uh, and meanwhile, desperately trying to get another check out of the big telco, the big bank, the big whatever, that's their tentpole customer. Because the, the big bank is the one that's floating their cash flow for the next right. quarter. It takes a long time to build up the 10,000 customers that are the equivalent of a single capital one. That's right. No, you have to do both. I've been in this position. You have to do both. No, well, I, exactly. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, I mean, you have to, right? You have to spend 80% of your time, you know, on those, on those big three or four whales in your patch and, and the rest, you know, it's, you got to feed yourself in the, in the meantime and it works. And that's how anybody I've lived in the startup world sold with a bunch of my peers who are at all these tech companies. And I guess I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I think I know what you're saying, but I want to make sure that we're clear. I, you have to hunt those whales. You, you, startup has, you don't have the resources, you don't have the channel, you don't have the ecosystem to go after, you know, a, a bunch of these, the, the krill, as you say. I mean, there's, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. And no, exactly. But th that's the transition point when you're no longer a startup that, where every quarter is stressful. Once you have 10,000 credit card swiping customers, then you have a baseline, you know, maybe one quarter does well and there are 11,000 and another quarter does poorly and there are 9,000. But you've reliably got a baseline of revenue where if the Capital One deal slips, the Citibank deal slips, the right. Vodafone deal slips, it's not company ending. I think the other piece that that sort of stretches back into my world is that you build a different product for those two different customers, right? When Citigroup writes you a right. check, they actually will come in and tell you exactly what you're building on your roadmap next, right? And and essentially you're beholden to them because and you, you say, are- yes, sir, thank you, sir, how high, sir? That's right. <laughs> and at some real basic level, they tell you that you're building for all of the Citigroups out there, but fundamentally you're also their development shop. And that, that could be okay. It's good to have a design partner, but nine times out of 10, that is a very different set of, features and functions than the credit card swipe world is interested in. And balancing that from a development and product management perspective is, a, uh, frankly, a hot mess. Yep, also very true. Another place where you need a lot of product management discipline to not be pulled away by, the, you know, the shiny object this quarter. It's a balance that's incredibly challenging, particularly when, like, Citigroup obviously has your CEO on speed dial, right? Yeah. And Namdi does go into that in his article. He talks about the VICs, the very important customers, and how you track that separately. And that's a separate metric, at least internally. Maybe you don't disclose this, or maybe you only disclose it to the board or whatever you. Uh, but 
I do like the the idea that weighted ACV uh, does have uh, a lot of value, especially as he points out, a standardized weighting. Because lots of companies do this. He has an example from I think Datadog in the piece, uh, where no, it's GitLab. My bad. And it talks about how GitLab does the weighting, but they do it at an arbitrary threshold that they set themselves, which probably makes sense for their business. And Datadog, just because I mentioned them, maybe has a different threshold and someone else has a third threshold. And how do you reconcile that? Uh, and it's a mess. I mean, you're not going at some level. This is marketing, right? At some level, this is financial everything marketing. Is marketing. Uh, everything is marketing. Um, uh, but financial marketing is marketing, right? It's a, It's got hockey sticks everywhere. Um, and so I think that while I appreciate his his logic is sound, the idea of having some sort of standard when that standard will be simply not applied if it doesn't tell the right story, right? This is marketing. Um, and in most modes where people are asking these questions, they are looking to sell something. Yeah, possibly Citrix or Tipco. That's right, that's right. I do wonder what the weighted ACV uh, for those looks like. Then again, I don't think many people are swiping their credit card. To, to get can you swipe your credit card for some tipco that just feels like a real strange notion to me <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if the credit card credit card swipe traveled over a tipco installation at some point in its journey that, that's right <laughs> for sure <laughs> you can't swipe your credit card for tipco but you cannot swipe it without tipco either <laughs> oh goodness i was getting metaphysical um <laughs> Speaking of metaphysical, uh, Intel is rapidly approaching the point of discussing how many angels can dance on the head of one of its chips. They're looking at sub-nanometer scales very, very soon. But no, I think it's interesting to be talking about Intel because we, among many other people in the market, had kind of written them off. Uh, everyone was just talking about ARM being the new hotness and AWS adopting ARM and servers with ARM chips x86 who cares about that and gelsinger to his credit is just not giving up uh he came in with a five-year plan call outs to the spirit of andy grove and the execution based on the grove approach and he'd been making acquisitions he's investing in fabs including brand new fabs um don't put intel in the corner <laughs> writing off gelsinger at any point in time feels like the wrong bet right yeah. it just this one is not going to quit especially with all the talk of the metaverse there was another piece about how all well and good vr etc 8k screens in each eye fine we we more or less know how to do that the chips to render the content to make this work uh we don't quite have those yet especially at the level of efficiency that's going to be required if people are going to be living inside of these things. And so that could be a way that for once, the metaverse connection is not just a marketing ploy to make the slides look cooler and be able to use funkier clip art, but it could actually be a real business driver for Intel, especially by the time these fabs come online. As you know, a new fab line is a multi-year investment before you start seeing anything come out the far end. I wonder if, like, Andy Grove was a huge innovator's dilemma guy, right? He was one of the, right. the OG disruption people. Um, and I wonder, you know, one of the magical tricks that Intel, if they could pull it off, would be to disrupt the ARM business with something that um, 
sort of fits that model or fits that plan and doesn't just continue the arms race on the usual vector. And I'm just curious whether that kind of strategy is the kind of thing they discuss in their hallowed halls. Yeah, disrupt themselves. That's always better than being disrupted by someone else. So they're spending five and a half billion to acquire Tower Semi, which I have to admit I hadn't heard of. But the point is they're a specialist uh, chip maker. They make analog chips. So we tend to think of uh, chips as being purely digital ones and zeros. They specialize in analog semiconductor components, uh, things like RF, audio, medical device signals, that sort of thing. Power devices is a big market for them. And you have to wonder, you know, they're thinking Internet of Things. You start miniaturizing these components. A lot of them are built on old uh, manufacturing technologies, very large scale, because they focus on reliability. And if you're installing the thing in a power plant or a car, it doesn't need to be that small. It's fine. If you're thinking of putting it in an implantable medical device or a wearable or anything like that, then you have to scale it down pretty dramatically. I'm wondering whether that's Intel's plan. Interesting. You know, I was reading up on DNA computing the other day, and it actually just blew my mind. I I don't – it's sort of – I'll put it in the same bucket as quantum computing, right, in that sort of, like, data encoded in ways I can't fathom quality. (laughs) Um, DNA computing does feel like the the premise of a very bad sci-fi movie, possibly with Jeff Goldblum. But nonetheless, like, it – there is this i'm sorry point of order there can be no bad movies with jeff goldblum (laughs) fair i we are aligned dominic um but if this is the reboot of jurassic park it wouldn't surprise me at all um but i do wonder though you know is this are we necessarily going to have to jump a technology vector pretty aggressively and into a different track jump the track to a different track in order to achieve some of these ends that people are talking about First of all, Intel's not out of the woods. Let's just make that clear. They're, you know, they have some some tailwinds with geopolitical issues at play. You know, I mean, we're seeing some of that play out with ARM and NVIDIA. So let's just, you know, make that clear. And, um, you know, their market's changed on them. So, you know, there is a need for ARM and, and there's still a need for Intel. But, you know, these acquisitions prove that they need some help along the way to, you know, complete their strategy. But, I mean, they're Intel. I mean, they're big. I mean, they're they're... Like an IBM now to me or a Cisco, to be quite honest, right? So, I mean, they've missed an innovation cycle. They paid the price for it, you know, and then hopefully they don't miss another one. They can get, you know, uh, go where they need to go. But uh, I don't know. I mean, to make it sound like they're out of the woods, it's, it's a five-year plan. I mean, he's just getting started. He's got a ways to go. Yep. Having a plan is a good start, but it's only a start. Good reminder yeah. there. Yeah. Last piece of news in brief, uh, Salesforce. Salesforce has established, they've actually been running uh, a Net Zero Cloud for a while, but they've rebooted it, Net Zero Cloud 2.0, which is now available globally. And this part of their sustainability vision, uh, accelerating the world's largest organizations to net zero, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you might think reading the press release that this is just a vendor patting themselves on the back. Uh, This is actually something that uh, customers are demanding. Uh, I've been part of conversations without going into too much detail, but customers are absolutely demanding uh, sustainability, uh, both the fact that their vendors will say we are sustainable, but increasingly they will ask for proof. They will ask for traceability. How are you sustainable? Are you just, you know, running the diesel generators, but then planting a couple of trees? 
or are you actually doing something concrete? What, what's your plan? How can we monitor that? How can we monitor that even in real time? People are talking about being able to select their cloud capacity based on environmental impact. It's the next frontier of uh, a investing for social good uh, initiatives. As, but I think Salesforce is uh, one of the largest companies to make this uh, this type of commitment. You know, aside from the the apples and so on of this world that we kind of expect it from. Uh, but I am very certain that they will not be the last. Yeah, I think it's reasonable that this is, uh, yes, I think motivated a little bit by market position. Let's call it that, right? And this is differentiator that they see as valuable. And I'm willing to bet that you can actually charge a premium. Exactly. And companies will work for profit. They will work for shareholder value. Um, so we shouldn't put them up on a pedestal just because they did something or even worse, because they said something. But I think the signal is important that they see value in doing this, that they see demand for them to do this. That's the the positive aspect here. And on that positive note, thank you very much for listening. We will continue with uh, the general theme of cloud in uh, the next uh, episodes in February. If you have any suggestions of topics, news items that we should be covering, or guests that we should invite on the show, please do send them our way, either on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with the number 4, or through our LinkedIn page, and the link will be in the show notes, uh, as will be the links to all the news stories that we discussed this episode. In the meanwhile, talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone.